G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. I've come to the very simple and fundamental conclusion that that modern illness uh, that humans experience is fundamentally a disconnect from nature, not just from a, a, a simple perspective as we no longer exist in nature anymore and we live in these gentrified concrete jungles that we call cities, but um, a fundamental disconnect from where our food is obtained and how it's obtained. I think the nature of farming has certainly transformed over the last 30 to 40 years. And I think that's reflected in, in, in the rates of disease that we as humans now experience that was Dr. Pran Yuganathon, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders, and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. Uh, and before I launch into a diatribe about our wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Pran Pran, I think he, he goes by both either, um, Yuganathon, who I have to say, what a remarkable fellow, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I just wanted to bang on about the fact that this episode um, is coming out about a week after my birthday and being a significant birthday, um, it has certainly, I mean, what do you do on that significant birthday? Not so much what do you do, what do you think? What do you think leading up to it? For those listeners who uh, have approached and have gone past that that number um, and on the other side of it, then I wonder what your experiences were because I know it's a significant age, um, 
certainly in the world of, um, well, anyone's world really, it's just sort of like a bit of a benchmark. Um, dare I say, <clears throat> when you turn 50, you're probably past halfway. Um, I trust I'm not. I've got some longevity genes in my blood and body. <clears throat> I trust, but I'm not going to just rest, rest on those laurels. But yeah, one is um, probably on the other side in the second half of their life, and in the you know, fair to say. Um, what does that do for me? Well, it got me thinking a lot, actually. Um, it got me thinking a lot about life, about my purpose, about what I was doing, where I'm up to, how do I spend my time. How much time do I spend with and away from family? How important is family? How important is health? You know, I love the phrase, um, be kind to your future self, you know, and I haven't, I've known that phrase for some years and I just, I haven't, you know, adopted that, adapted that to my life. Um, But certainly hitting a significant age does make you think about it. You know, you've got a little bit more of an ache um, in the morning, maybe a little extra, you know, I haven't got to a stage of having to get a get a whole punch and put some extra holes in my belt. Um, but, yeah, just, I don't know, just gets you. And I guess, is it different from men and women? I don't know. I'm not a woman, so I don't know. But I think maybe men have a different kind of perspective on that. Maybe men are a bit more of a rush or a bit more competitive or a bit more panicky about that. I don't know. Maybe it's just not a gender thing. Maybe it's just about a purpose thing, purpose-driven people and people who have found their purpose and feel purposeful. And um, uh, and there's a bloody word I keep forgetting, um, not, not achieve, not success, fulfilled. Fulfilled is the word. They say that Robin Williams, um, who tragically took his own life some years ago, he was successful but not fulfilled. And I often think of that, am I fulfilled, you know, um, Am I fulfilling my life purpose? That is that remains to be seen. Actually, you know, I got to say, um, have got any tips on how to find it? Let me know. I think it's in there. It's actually it's like the the hero's journey, um, or the alchemist. You know, we have to go and travel, traverse the world to get back to where we started from, and realise that was always there within us. We just had to kind of go on that journey. Um, so there you go. That's a little reflection. I wasn't necessarily banking on having with you all, but um, given it's a week after, this, this this episode's coming out a week after my birthday. There you go. Um, now, who is it? Oh, before I do launch into um, Pran, um, the good doctor, or, or, or NARP, NARP, Lila would call him, uh, which he did laugh about, I have to say. I don't think it wasn't an insult at all. Um, he has far, you know, lovely sense of humour. Um, Christmas is fast approaching. Oh, my God. Um, it's minutes away. There'll be all the paraphernalia in the shops before we know it. Um, what I will say is, though, that um, uh, if anyone wants to, to keep in touch with our biodynamic workshops next year, for next year, we're thinking of going to, we're going to change slightly the approach we do things next year, just to give you the quick heads up. Um, if anyone wants to come to one of our workshops, you're going to have to act early because we're going to have to be a bit more strict on kind of... Um, when, when when tickets have finished getting cut off, um, where they're going to be, <clears throat> how often, how many we have and how, how many attend each one. So if you are at all inclined to, you know, come along to one of our workshops um, next year, 2023, we're going to be in WA, I think April, May, somewhere around there. Definitely in Hanamino. We're going to do a few at Hanamino. 
Uh, where it all started right here um, in the lovely green lush paddocks that are Hannah Minow. Um, also, we'll do one in Victoria. We'll do one in 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 in, in Queensland. Um, we'll do one up in northern northern New South Wales. Um, we've already got one for Inverell. Uh, I think it's the 14th and 15th or 13th and 14th. Oh, my God, I hope I didn't get that wrong. But um, anyway, it's at uh, somewhere there in the beginning of um, uh, February there. Check the website, charliearn.com.au, for all the details. Just drop your name and obviously your email on the website and say, hey, you know what, keep me in the loop because I don't want to miss it because I don't know we're going to be going back to WA for a year or two. Um You've just got to use our time very wisely, as you do too. So don't miss out. Get your name down and make sure you don't miss out on any of our workshops next year. Uh, depending on when you're seeing this, um, oh, hang on, listening to this, uh, Tasmania might be closing very shortly uh, by the time you hear this, Tassie North and South. Um, get on the website, check it out. And the farm at Byron Bay in the first week of December, that's a goer. Um, we've got some special news that we're going to tell people. Probably, I can't tell you now. Um, when you hear this, you probably already know what a special guest we've got on actually coming to lunch on one of those days. Da-da-da-da. But um, Dr. Pran, Pran, Yeganathon, what a lovely bloke. I've got to say, I, I, caught a, I met him well, I met him for the first time. Oh, was it the conference? It might have been at the RCS conference. I got a feeling it was somewhere else. I can't remember. But anyway, it was in July, the Convergence Conference. He was there. He wasn't there for too long. He had other stuff on, but he slipped in and had a half or a full day there. Um, and what struck me about Pran, Pran, is um, he's going to have to tell me which he prefers because I just can't do that every time, can I? Uh, nup, nup. Um just he's just got balls. I mean, he the guy is he's done he's decades of of um, uh, gastroenterology, you know, specialising, and not just your run of the mill. I mean, I've been to them before, and I go into it in the interview, and it's like I oh, open up, or have your anaesthetic, or going to stick something down your throat, check it out, and then you're going to get told you need medication for the rest of your life for some reflux. It's like, are you serious? He's not that guy. Um, he has been um, a championing um, health, the connection between, you know, food as medicine and food in, in, in you know, gut health because um, he sees it. He sees you know, clients coming in with um, with serious illness and, you know, some of those, and, he you know, he has mentioned that a lot of those are those that have a have an issue with eating meat for whatever reason and it's really affecting their bodies, you know. I've heard some horrifying stories, not of individual, not of, I don't know who they were, but just, he said, clients. So no no um, crossing of uh, confidentiality there. Um, but just, you know, cl- clients that have just, um, it's, you know, their, their, their eating habits, their, their food choices is really impacting their health. And look, who, who doesn't have um, some sort of a, uh, not a food allergy necessarily, but, you know, everyone's got to be really careful about what they eat. Um, make it clean, make it fresh, make it local if you can, make it nutritious, make it biodynamic even better. But um, he goes into all of that and he, yeah, wow, he went down some, not rabbit holes, not quite, we could have, we could have, but um, uh, we didn't go too far. However, we did have a lovely chat. He was, it was here at Hannah Minow, um, just behind me actually, um, uh, halfway through one of our biodynamic workshops um, back, back some weeks ago now. Um, 
we were under the pump. He had to he had to get going to to a nuts or something else. Um, and we could have chatted for another hour without a shadow of the doubt of doubt because we didn't even talk about his farm up in northern New South Wales or northern Tablelands. And we didn't even talk about. Like it occurred to me later, like what was the catalyst or the impetus to actually dig deep into this? We might have touched on it a bit. We didn't sort of really have a good sniff around that that catalyst for change, starting him on his regenerative journey. Lovely fella. Really um, honoured to have a chat with him too because he's pretty in demand. Get on his Instagram. Actually, I noticed today he might have disappeared. I'm sure hopefully by the time you hear this, it's back. Get on, listen to The Good Doctor. Um, I trust you enjoy this episode, um, an interview with um, Dr. Pran Yuganathon. As much as I really enjoyed recording it and sitting and chatting with this wonderful um, intellect, not intellect, just, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a knowing doer, as Hamish Mackay would say. He's a knowing doer. He knows his stuff and he's doing a lot about it. And as I say, if you don't have a few enemies, you're not having a go, and this bloke is having a 100% go. Enjoy this episode of The Regenerative Journey. Okay. Pran. Pran. Either either or is fine. Or or did what we were saying, um, NARAP. (laughs) <laughs> Lilla, as, Lilla, as Lilla would say, <laughs> she'd say it backwards. Yeah, that's um, We are welcome to the regenerative journey, and welcome to what we call the flower room. Oh, actually, that's the flower room. This is Angie's office. I often get them confused because they're kind of the same room, um, overlooking the dam, or some people call it the lake. But it's you know, growing up here, it's just the dam. Mm. Not just the dam; it's a beautiful dam. Um, so, welcome to Hannah Minow. Thanks, Charlie. It's been a it's been a very eye opening uh, trip for me, and you you live in paradise, mate. Well done. It is paradise, and there's a lesson right there, just of um, I guess remembering and, and being grateful for this, because I do sometimes, you know, f- forget. You don't. I can't sort of maintain. Well, I possibly uh, I could maintain that gratefulness every moment of the day but we often forget in the heat of the moment and yeah. getting stuff done on farm but it is a beautiful place to be and a beautiful time of year we're coming to spring we're sort of just the first week of spring um mate what um so as the name suggests the regenerative journey is not just about regenerative farming because you're not regenerative farming necessarily yet but we'll get to that it's really really about the regenerative journey that you've been on in this case you being the guest of the moment and um, which we'll kind of get to chronologically, starting at whatever point you want to. Uh, but what does it mean? I usually um, interview my guests in their happy place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their garden, it's their farm, it's their place of work. Um, so for you, it may have been Dural or it could have been somewhere further north on a farm where we'll get to talk about. But you're at Hannah Minow. Um, why, why are you... <laughs> Apart from being invited down to our biodynamics workshop, why did you think it might be a good idea to come down here? And not necessarily about Hannah Minow itself, but like kind of country farming. Um, it's uh, There's a lot to unpack there, um, Charlie. I mean, I think um, firstly, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be invited by yourself to, to come here and learn a, a thing or two about regenerative farming and, and what you guys do here. And it's been eye-opening uh, for me. Um, I'm, I'm only at the very beginning of my journey into looking at farming. But uh, as a doctor, I suppose, after 22 years of, of working as a doctor, I've 
done this now for a couple of decades, I think I've come to the very simple and fundamental conclusion that that modern illness uh, that humans experience is fundamentally a disconnect from nature, not just from a, a, a simple perspective as we no longer exist in nature anymore and we live in these gentrified concrete jungles that we call cities, but um, a fundamental disconnect from where our food is obtained and how it's obtained. I think the nature of farming has certainly transformed over the last 30 to 40 years. And I think that's reflected in, in, in the rates of disease that we as humans now experience. But all of this has been gradual. It's it's crept up on us. So when something like that occurs, we we don't necessarily see, it doesn't really hit us in the face. It's been an insidious, slow decay of health. Uh, but what is certain is when you look at it from a mathematical perspective, the rates of, of specific diseases, whether that be cancers or diabetes, obesity, autoimmune illnesses, mental health issues, they're all rising and not just rising slowly, they're rising exponentially. And at some point, I think the the world of medicine or the world of health or disease care, as I like to call it, <laughs> needs to needs to step back, um, and we need to reassess what is going on. I think um, we can certainly talk about it a bit later. But th- th- there's this huge push for development of new medications, and there's always a headline in the in the paper once a year or something. You know, a cure for type two diabetes. Well, there really isn't a cure. There's only there's only stopgap solutions. So what 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 I think I'm, if you if you'd asked me what, what's my process of regeneration like? My, my process of regeneration has been basically to redefine the way I look at uh, disease and how potentially we can look at solving it, albeit you know um, helping at least. I reckon we just probably leave, leave, leave the interview there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's awesome. <laughs> it's it's going to need some more bacon. Mate, that was gold. You know, I, I look just as a little segue, I, um, I take my notes, like quote notes, mm-hmm. um, time codes for like poignant little quotes and everything, and sometimes it takes half an hour to get to that point, mm. and you've just hit it in the, in the first Two point two minutes forty, you hit it. So thank you. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> this is going to be a ball terror. I guess it's it's you spend a lot of time reflecting. I do anyway. Um, I spend a lot of time reflecting on on these sort of things. So um, you know, uh, it's it's not easy to sort of. Um, Think about some of these factors because it's it's a it opens up some unpleasant truths about I guess my industry, uh, but it's important that we do that if we're to gain some sort of solution moving forward. Um, oh, <laughs> we could go anywhere right now. Uh, I want to get back to some chronological order, but that is the unpleasant untruths. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it, and that is again well, that's one of the many reasons why um, you're here. Um, I know what you're – well, I get a sense of what you're looking to kind of do and where you, your focus might start going in terms of farming, um, <clears throat> certainly with your background with um, – what do you call it? Disease um, – disease care? No, mm. disease care. Um, uh, you know, the, what I what – I, you know, we, we met there a few months ago at the RCS Convergence Conference and which that dinner – and as I, as I mentioned sort of not, not long after and maybe since then somewhere – yeah, you know, I thought that was a, such a wonderful convergence. It was a pre-convergence on that Friday night of mm. you being a doctor, um, Diana being a nutritionist, di- dietitian. I'm not sure if she likes being called a dietitian, but I guess that's kind of her, her field in a way. And Cherie with her, I mean, she's an animal doctor mm. and I'm, you know, 
the farmer. And I just thought that was a really lovely combination of court professions or whatever else. And um, so I guess that was a really nice way to, to meet you, um, you know, face to face. But what I see on your Instagram feed, I'm not on Twitter, and I sort of in and out of Facebook, uh, it's fascinating. So that's why, that's why I'm really excited. And I, as I said to you last night in the pub, we've only got limited time now. <clears throat> and I reckon that's fine because we've got the workshop kicking off at nine o'clock again. But I reckon I'm, 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 I'm predicting a, like a part two. Usually part two is I, I just split an interview, but we'll, we'll have to catch up later in the year, potentially on your farm and finish this off. Um, so, mate, really excited for you to be here and to be at Hannah Minow and, 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 and show off, so to speak. I love showing off Hannah Minow just because I'm so – I'm not so much proud of it. It was I guess it's a pride. It's maybe the wrong word, but kind of like this is where I – this is my happy place hmm. and I love sharing it. And Penny, Penny Scott, who's the bush goddess doing the catering for the workshop, um, she just said to me last night, whispered and said, you've got something amazing going on here. And it's not me, it's the people in it, as mm. we mentioned before about the team. Mm. So I reckon somewhere along the line, again, not being too preemptive, I reckon, you know, we'll team up doing something. I'd love to do that. We've already talked about how that can be sort of in a you know, informal, sort of a nice reciprocal way. Um, let's start somewhere when you were young, um, NARAP. I'm going to keep calling you NARAP now. It's, <laughs> it's code. Who are you talking about? That guy. Um, chronologically, where do you want to start? Where were you born? Let's, let's start there. Yeah, sure. Um, look, it's, a, it's a, again, a bit of a convoluted story, but I was uh, born in Jaffna, Sri Lanka, which is a northern part of uh, Sri Lanka. I'm a Tamil uh, Sri Lankan by birth. Uh, my father's a dentist and my mother was a, um, a, a stay-at-home mum. We we were born into what was fundamentally a paradise. I mean, Sri Lanka, what people think of Sri Lanka, right? And, and you know, the, the place conjures up images of beaches and, you know, lovely people. And that's what it is. We're, we're a little island off, um, off the coast of India, very different um, place to India, very, very um, similar in some ways, but also there's huge amounts of uh, societal differences there. Um, and uh, at the age of probably in the 80s, early 80s, our, our world was kind of plunged into chaos with the advent of the Civil War. Um, what do you say, advent? Uh, when it started. Uh, yeah, but like, was it... Was it um, it'd, been, it'd been brewing for, yeah, for okay. a while, but we were at the heart of it because, um, you know, we had the we had the Tamil Tigers. You might have heard of the Tamil Tigers. Have you heard of them? They were the... Definitely. I was gonna, yeah. When you said you're, you're um, a Tamil, is that kind of how... Is there any sort of... They're, they're a minority, minority group in, in Sri Lanka. Is that based on religion or is it based on ge- geography? Is um, it based on kind of, of philosophies? A, a, a bit of both, a bit of both. Both. They're just a type of uh, people uh, from the southern part of India. Okay. So our 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 origins are from Tamil Nadu in 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 India. Um, migration there, you know, many probably many thousands of years ago. But the religion very much is Hinduism. Okay. Um, uh, we're we we're, we're a little bit different culturally to the Sinhalese um, Sri Lankans, who are the the majority uh, race. And and there was conflict uh, between the two groups. I think the Tamils wanted a separate state or a separate 
uh, governing um, rule, um, which uh, the Sinhalese weren't keen on, and, and there was resistance. So the Tamil Tigers were an interesting group because they're the first, one of the first. Sit back, mate, if you, um, if you want to. We're going to just oh, thanks, mate. Don't, yeah. don't feel alarmed. I've got to reach for your mic there. No, no, if that's I, right. Move it if you want to go forward and whatever, then just you've got to be no, comfy. That's, that's all. That's comfortable. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the Tamil Tigers were, you know, started employing young kids into into war and using them as suicide bombers and all sorts of crazy things. So from my parents' perspective, they were just really keen to get us out of there. So uh, 1987, 88, we sort of fled. I would have been six, seven years old. Um, and we went to India and subsequently from there to Nigeria, which was, <laughs> which was a country plunged into chaos. But sometimes when you're fleeing chaos, you don't really get a choice of where you, uh, where you end up. So a lot of my time spent in Nigeria and then subsequently we left that um, and went to Zimbabwe. I lived in a little uh, little village called Bindura. Uh, my father was the, the sort of village slash town dentist. Um, what age were you then? Would have probably been about um, probably eight and a half, you know, something like that. Yeah. Did you, did you in that, those journeys of like, oh, we're packing up now, we're going, did you, did you know – get a sense of that being a because of conflict or was like mum and daddy's went oh we need to go now I guess when you're born into it Charlie like that just becomes a new norm I didn't really know anything else you know that we're always moving always changing there was a lot of um, chaos, political turmoil. And as a kid, you know, like I'm pretty lucky. My parents largely protected me from a lot of that mess. Um, so I grew up a happy kid. Africa was just amazing. A lot of open land to play on. And, you know, we had safaris and things like that. Love the Africans. They've got a really special, um, the way they view life, they don't take life too seriously, uh, especially back then. Um, and and we had a great time in Zimbabwe, but you know there was start, uh, it was starting to to there, there was some signs that political turmoil again was on the horizon with Robert Mugabe and his policies that that we know what rolled out from there. So this was in the, uh, what, what are we talking, uh, early 80s? No, uh, late 80s now late 80s, and yeah. heading into the, you know, heading into the 90s. So we we packed up from Zimbabwe and, and we had to leave because my father, as I said, was a dentist and dentists tend to be prone to what we call needle stick injuries, right, which where they're fiddling around in the mouth and they can inject themselves accidentally and so forth. And how that's relevant is HIV and AIDS was starting to become a problem. So we, we were having, you know, dental nurses and dentists just dropping dead, you know, within within a few years of, of di- a few months sometimes of diagnosis because there's no cure or no treatment for HIV back then. Uh, and so that was an incentive for us to, to move, um, uh-huh. albeit very reluctantly because we'd set up home there and we were relatively happy there. So um, uh, I think I, I was a big um, uh, precipitant for my parents to, to move because I, I think I gave them a, an option, Canada, Australia or New Zealand. Or I just needed to get out. You know, I, I couldn't see a future there in, in Zimbabwe. And I think um, we tried to get to Australia. The visas, uh, unfortunately, were rejected and managed to get New Zealand. So I think it would have been about... 11, 12 years of age when we moved to New Zealand to the South Island, uh, lived in a lovely little uh, place called Otago, Dunedin, mm-hmm. went to school there and uh, subsequently did my university training. So that that's a little bit of my, my childhood, mate. Uh, siblings? 
I've got a younger sister, Variety. She's a endodontist, which Ver- is a Variety. Uh, Variety. Variety. Yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, so she she's a, a dentist, a specialist dentist. Uh, she does uh, endodontics, which is root canals and things like that. So, with that, um, I guess childhood formative years of, I, I guess in some ways fleeing. Yep. You know, different reasons, civil civil unrest, um, desert, well, I guess disease or kind of the the threat of of, of you know. Death. That's, yeah, that's that's a good incentive. <clears throat> Do you think that that has informed your behaviours or kind of thinking around you know, how you respond, fight or flight? Um, uh, does that make you defensive? Does that make you assertive? Like, do you think there's some you know those those formative years of court fleeing or kind of just yeah. movement and conflict? Is that sort of... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Charlie. Like I certainly, when I met my wife mid-20s, um, you know, I, I was a doctor, junior doctor there, there's a lot of development to be done, to be done. You know, I was very much, an, uh, you know, a, a, a raw product, so to speak. In New Zealand? This is no, this is in Australia because I moved to Australia when I was about 21, right? I was a junior doctor, I was done. So you did, it only took you three years. No, so look, um, yeah, this is, I don't like talking about it much, but I was in university pretty early on yeah. in the piece. I was accelerated through school, uh, jumped a couple of years because I had good mathematic ability, good logical ability. You're like um, Doogie Howser. Oh, I don't know about that, mate. I was just, <laughs> you know, I was just a good mathematician. And, and get this, my father, who didn't want to put me into junior school because he would have had to buy two sets of uniforms to senior school was a couple of years away. So he thought, look, we'll save on the, uh, on the uniform <laughs> costs. Uh, I don't blame him. I don't, I don't blame him financially. We That's had it very thing. tough for a few years anyway in New Zealand. So um, accelerated through the ranks necessarily, like looking on in retrospect, probably not a great thing for my social development. Um, you know, I was always a tiny little brown kid, you know, in, 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 that would in, have been uh, tough. Yeah, look, but, but it was good because it made me adapt. It made me adapt and I, I learned how to navigate different people and learned to uh, blend in. I, 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 it taught me a lot of life skills. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, you know, um, in my childhood at all, uh, because it's kind of formed who I am. But to go back to your original question of, uh, did that affect me? Absolutely. Like, um, uh, as I said, when, when I moved to Australia, met my, um, my wife, current wife, Tamara, um, very much um, un- unpolished and um, a lot of development to do. And she's certainly shaped me a lot over the last, um, you know, 15 years or so. And um, I've learned a great deal from her. And uh, it goes back to the point that you made yesterday sometimes, like, you know, I think the company of a, a, an intelligent woman is uh, critical for some men. You know, most men, I'd argue, and uh, in 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 my case, um, certainly she was a, a major factor in in how um, my life's been shaped. Did she, um, <clears throat> not knowing her and, and looking forward to meeting her one day, yeah. um, did she? I can imagine that was that. <laughs> Not that she took you on as a project, by any means. <laughs> but I mean, did she? Was it innate in her to kind of 
to be to help and like did 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 she was it overt or sort of you know passively kind of think I'm going to help this guy out I guess in relationships it, it often just just happens because you you bond and it's just sort of the course that it takes but did she have to kind of assert some of her own skills to sort of get to, to, to whip you into shape was it an, was it acknowledged that maybe you needed some no, no socializing maybe, or whatever it was <laughs> maybe not um, overtly mate um, we never talked about it on a conscious level, I suppose subconsciously. I mean, she does love renovation, takes loves taking broken things and. <laughs> you, <laughs> and you and, were a project. Yeah, I must have been. I must have been <laughs> of some description. Uh, we got along, mate. We're we're, we're very different people. I'm a. I can be a little bit intense at times and prone to ruminate and and uh, think too deeply about life. Whereas um, she she's a lot more easygoing. You know, she's. Um, uh, she's from farming background. She's of Australian descent. So they come from a, a long line of cattle farmers and, and um, well, a grandfather anyway. So that they've always had farming in their blood. And I just think it lends itself to an approach to life that is a, perhaps a little bit more, more laid back, connected with nature, which is certainly what she is. And uh, we, we just complimented each other because, um, you know, some people uh, say opposites attract, and I think that's certainly the case uh, for us. Yeah, I love that um, re- renovation project. Do you think is she finished? Is the is the project complete? No, probably never. No, no, it's uh, very much. We'd have to ask. <laughs> how's her, her budget? But, uh, how's her budget looking? Is she <laughs> no looking? <doubt>. She <laughs> <laughs> keep on going. The, the, I the need more. Budget's probably blown out for her, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, we keep working on on um, myself. I'm, I mean, I must admit, I, I asked her the other day, uh, "Do you think I've changed you?" And and she said, "Not not all that much." And I agree with that. She's not changed one bit from from the um, young twenty two year old that I've met. She's a very stable person, and uh, probably the only bit of stability really when that I've had in my life. I've had great parents. Um, uh, you know, I'll acknowledge that. But um, Tam's been fantastic. And we mentioned uh, cattle background farming. Just curious, whereabouts was she? Was, yeah, was um, her grandfather um, uh, owned. Um, I think it was a massive, you know, Northern Territory somewhere. Oh yeah. Um, I can't remember this. A Calandra Station cattle station. I think it was of something like five hundred thousand hectares or something like this. Back, yeah, you know, long, long time ago, um, they sold that on sold that and. Um, and her father grew up um, on on very smaller farms. I think in in places like Tamworth and and um, and and Toowoomba. He's currently in Toowoomba, so he um, they've always had that in their blood. And Tam herself grew up in the Southern Highlands. Um, yeah, so she's a barrel girl. So um, look, I won't hold that against her. <laughs> I did four years at a prep school in that part of the world too, oh, did you? running around in shorts yep. all winter long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Formative years. Yes. Oh, awesome. Um, now tell me, she will appear no doubt um, later in 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 in, in the project of NARAP. <laughs> the Narrow Project. There's a doco series right there. Yeah, I think so. It's a mini series. <laughs> um, so back to Australia, um, doctor's certificate in hand. Uh, um, met t- uh, Tam? T- yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd met Tam probably mid-20s, 24. Was that so. at a um, – can I ask how? I always find these oh, stories fascinating. Yeah. Was it like at a bar, a nightclub, at a convention? No, I'd invited <laughs> myself to a uh, house party. 
Oh, yeah, in, I, was I, in I, Sydney? We in yeah, Sydney, in yeah. Sydney. I think she was in Artarman at the time. Um, I invited myself. I tagged along with a friend. Um, it was We saw each other. I think, you know, there was no rubbish. I mean, we were both obviously kind of drawn to each other. And um, it's funny how it works like that sometimes, isn't it? You're sort of drawn to, to specific people. And, um, you know, I think I told her that, that I'm not – really into kind of playing games, you know, from a relationship perspective and neither was she and we've been we've been together um, ever since. Nice. Yeah. Um, and, again, I'd love to, to meet her. I'm sure I will one day. Um, so young in love um, started – when did you start your sort of your, your, your doctor – your career or had you started at that yeah, point? Yeah, look, I had. So and where? 21 and a bit, I'd started in Westmead Hospital as a resident, a junior doctor. Uh, I was really lost in medicine. I, I didn't particularly want to do medicine. Well, well, there's a question. What, what uh, New Zealand young, yeah. uh, and and then put it, you know, found yourself. Did you find yourself there? Was it kind of you'll do this, uh, or like what do you reckon? Yeah, oh, my, shit, my, my parents probably pushed me. You know, it's a very Southeast Asian thing. You know, you either become a doctor or a dentist or something like this. This is this is what the parents decide for the kids. And my parents had been through a lot of crap. You know, like with with uh, their history with what they had to do. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess I wanted to kind of reward them as well. Um, and it's, it's a thing that a lot of Southeast Asian parents pride, you know, that their kid have, kid's done medicine or mm-hmm. something like this. So I, I think I, I probably did it for them. Um, you know, as I said, my interest was always mathematics and physics and so forth. But um, I, I, I kind of did it for them and, and basically sleepwalked my way through med school. That, that sounds arrogant because it's thought to be a challenging you know, degree. And it, it was, but I just, I just had the ability to kind of rope learn things and just regurgitate it when it came to the test and, and, you know, just scrape through type thing. My heart wasn't in it. Um, and at many times I even considered just sort of dropping out of medicine and doing something else, but I'd committed so much and my parents pushed me. And, and so I completed it. And when I was a junior doctor, I, I couldn't wait to get out of New Zealand because I'd lived with my parents. Um, I, I needed that independence. So I came here, lived by myself, traveled around Australia, various places, you know, locoming, you know, traveling around as a junior doctor, just picking up shifts and so forth, you know, Cairns and Tamworth and all sorts of, you know, place Armadale. And um, mm. that's that's what I did, mate. Um, so uh, I think for me, uh, when I when I became a physician and fell into gastroenterology, and I'll use the word fell, again, I was just sort of kind of sleepwalking my way through. And I did gastroenterology because one of my best mates did gastroenterology. I mean, what a... Is he still doing that? Yeah, he's uh, actually one of the professors at uh, Mayo Clinic in America. He's a, you know, he's a legitimate genius, a guy by the name of Vivek Kambari. Um, very, very intelligent man. And, um, you know, we were really close and he was very, very much destined to do something like gastroenterology because it's a, it's a challenging field and, uh, he encouraged me to do it. So I just kind of followed him in there. I figured I'd, I'd keep him company. And here I was as a, a, a gastroenterologist with, um, three years of training. And then was that when you say you were in Sydney at that point? Yeah, always been in Sydney, always been based in Sydney. And was there any point in that sort of getting on board and you went because your mate did, then going, oh, God, I don't like guts anymore? 
Now, look, I've always found it a fascinating field and probably in retrospect, I'm glad I did it because I think it's the right field for me. It's a, it's, it's a field that's based around logic. Um, it's very tangible. If there's a disease of the gut, we can, we can put a camera in there and actually visualize the thing, you know, and um, it's a very objective field of medicine. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I did it. Um, but at various points, I just couldn't help but feel that, that the specialty didn't make sense because here was a specialty that focuses on the gut and yet the connection with nutrition and diet was never really made. I mean, we'd, we'd get into these situations where a person would ask, Is, does my disease of the gut have anything to do with what I put in my gut? And the answer was often no. Yeah. This is in the training. In training, yeah, in training. And uh, we deal with the liver as well. This, we're a specialty of the liver. We call it hepatology. And we see a ton of this condition called fatty liver disease, which is fundamentally metabolic syndrome, which is like almost a, almost a pre-diabetes state or, or, or type 2 diabetes exists on that spectrum of metabolic syndrome. And again, very much a disease of lifestyle that we would – we will put it down a lot of a lot of the time to genetics or bad luck or bad lifestyle, but never really give the person advice on lifestyle. How do you correct it? You know, utilizing methods that are fundamentally um, free and natural. You know, uh, it was never a focus. So that to me never really made sense, and it it, um, it it's always bugged me. Did you um, so before you specialised and, and in your your years in um, New Zealand was there? I'm assuming there was a component on gut digestion. You know, was there? Was I mean, was it a was it was it one lecture? Was it like how did it, what what was what was your touch point there with with the gut um, modules? It was always modules in you know medical school. You do blocks, weeks of specific things. And we certainly looked at things like nutrition and gut, but it was still very much the same message that's been 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 given for years, Charlie, which is the concept of low fat diets. You know, even back then, the concept of red meat is bad was very much you know uh, pushed into our brain. Saturated fat is bad. Plant based eating is the way to go. Grains are the way to go. The, 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 these are the sort of um, teachings that are done in med school, and there's not a hell of a lot of focus on nutrition. I, I can't remember how long we spent. As I said, I slept walk my way through uh, med school. Um, I wasn't there for large portions of the lectures. Obviously, I. I I'd, um, you know, that a lot of a lot of those things were never regulated. So, I, I I just wasn't enamored with the method of teaching. I suppose it didn't really motivate me nor nor fascinate me. So, um, but but to go back to your original question, the focus was there on on nutrition, but I just think it was probably too short and fundamentally inaccurate. Mm. Yeah. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. 
Um, when I was at, I did rural science, four-year degree at Armidale Uni um, there, and we, not dissimilar, like, you know, I've sort of specialised, dare I say, in you know, regenerative farming, organic farming or natural farming. But our the module, or the, the, I guess it was a module, the unit was, um, I think we, organic farming somehow sat in somewhere, like mm. farming systems, you know, mm. like for a lecture. Mm. You know, in four years of, of study, of yeah. intense, you know, study, it was there was one, it was a half an hour sort of lecture on it, which was, um, you know, interesting. Not 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 aware of that, or kind of didn't put that in the context of the time, of course, because it was all just very science based, and you know, um, this is what you learn. This this is what oh, it's this organic stuff, weirdos, you know, um, not spraying and you know, letting things just go and. Um, but then that being a major part of my life later on, but yeah, reflecting on that was certainly not a focus, or mm. or, or wasn't given it wasn't given given the the airtime it really deserved, yep. you know. Yeah. Um, so locum work. Um, did you settle down to? Uh, did, you, did you do your gastroenterology kind of? Um, your work as a locum or locum and then you then you specialise? No, when you when you becoming a specialist doctor, you've got to commit three years. Um, so you enter something called physician training, which is a very difficult set of exams to pass both uh, theoretical and practical. I did my practicals in Monash in Melbourne um, and I we, we did, me and Vivek studied together. We were a study group. That's the gentleman I mentioned before who's my mate. And um, we, we got through, we did really well in in the theory and practical aspect of it. So when we applied for gastroenterology, we were both. It's a very, um, it, it's a, it's a sought after field, a very popular field. So, gastroenterology. Yeah, it is um, because it's procedural work. Procedural work in medicine is often well remunerated, Charlie. Okay. Right, um, and so it's very popular from that perspective, and it's an interesting field as well. So we we both got on uh, very very easily, and it, once you've gotten onto the program, it's three years of hardcore gastroenterology training, we're learning endoscopies, colonoscopies, procedures called, called ERCPs, which is which is a, a, a procedure that looks at the bile duct, a very challenging procedure to do, uh, polyp removals. There's, there's just full-on three years of practical work, hands-on. So you're going top and bottom? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so through the endoscopies, mouth, yep. and then... Colonoscopy is yep. that one. Yeah, I had an endoscopy once upon a time. Yeah, uh, and I, I, the reason I remember it is was sort of the, the way that the way that it ended. Um, you know, you go under, you don't know what's going on. You wake up. What, what do you reckon, Doc? Oh, you've, I can't remember what he sort of said, but I was getting like um, reflux. I guess it's reflux. Yep. Um, and and he said. Um, well, there's medication for that. I went, oh, you know what? When I have um, slippery elm powder in honey, it, like, it, it fixes it up. It's incredible. Like, it really does make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bloody, bloody, <laughs> bloody witchcraft, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and that was it. And that was the last I heard or saw of him. It was like, oh, you need you need to have beyond medication for life. Yeah. You know, there was nothing. That, that was the dead end. That was a very terminal conversation. And yeah. I never went back. And I found that... Um, Apart from this morning, this morning when I just I couldn't cook you eggs and bacon without having some myself, and I'm actually getting no reflux at all um, now. Um, 
I just cut out breakfast and yep. I wasn't getting that. I'd eat the same sort of thing later in the day. Anyway, that's about me. But, um, yeah, so top and bottom. So that's that's the whole digestive, you know, tr- tract yep. then, which is – and one thing I love about that, and Hamish does reference it sometimes, is um, – that that's like that's our skin. It's like the yep. inter- internal kind of continuation of it. We're like a tube, aren't we? Yep, it fundamentally is. It's such a fascinating field because nutrition underpins pretty much every aspect of of uh, human life, right? Or human existence. We need nutrition. Um, to be able to survive, we need to be able to take these external carbohydrates, uh, fats and proteins and cleave them into their constituent parts, which are sugars, uh, free fatty acids and amino acids, and uh, along with other minerals and vitamins and, and be able to absorb them into our system. Um, so the gut is sort of a gateway into the human body. Um, and if the gateway is compromised, you have disease. Right. And that's fundamentally what I think is occurring in, in, in the modern world. I think, you know, in the naturopathic and homeopathic circles, it's described as leaky gut. But in, in our world, we, we didn't acknowledge that up until very recently. So credit to a lot of the people in those fields. Uh, of homeopathy that have been sort of talking about this for years. But in our world now, we call it intestinal permeability, which is where the gateway, um, this Fort Knox that our gut should be is fundamentally compromised, right? And with that compromise comes the sort of free exchange of toxins, bacterial antigens, viral antigens, fungal elements uh, into our blood circulation, which we think drives chronic inflammation. And it's somehow linked with this process of chronic inflammation, which is what modern disease is. Modern disease equals chronic, unrelenting, insidious inflammation. And we have to be able to distinguish that from historical, um, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers pre-civilization, infection uh, was was our big killer. And, um, you know, even, even in pre-industrial revolution era because of hygiene-based issues, you know, poor sewage um, type drainage, um, lack of hand washing, all these sort of things. Death from infection was the number one killer. So when we used to die, we used to die of acute inflammation. Acute is a dramatic presentation which is sudden and short-lived and often very catastrophic versus the modern world where we exist in this non-infectious inflammation which is more chronic and insidious. It just eats away at us slowly. That's fascinating, isn't it? That, that I've never sort of seen that distinction between the acute, you know, it's all over pretty quickly because there's, yeah. there's a very visual often and a tangible disease and a, um, as opposed to what I guess, you know, I don't know what proportion of the population you might know is actually suffering this inflammatory um, underlying you know, almost all of us. All of us, yeah. And that, us. And, that, and that, depending on the individual and all sorts of different variables, there that will express itself in so many different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Chronic um, inflammation. Like, you know, if I use myself as a as an example, right? I'm a, I'm a Southeast Asian man. We're highly prone to type two diabetes and heart disease. For me personally, if I was to lead a lifestyle of, let's say. Uh, Excess. If I was to embrace the uh, the fruits of gentrification, so to speak, um, uh, I'd be very prone to developing type two diabetes. Um, but for a man like yourself, 
Charlie, might be different. The manifestations might be autoimmune illness, something like rheumatoid arthritis, could be something like reflux, could be something like cancer. So we 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 have to realize that 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 genes certainly play a role in how the disease expresses itself and we give these diseases various names and that's the reductionist nature of modern medicine. You know, we just want to to reduce things down to organ systems, you know, like you go see a brain doctor for a brain problem, a gut doctor for a gut problem. Really, the the the, the doctor of the future should be able to view the human body in its entirety um, and not practice that 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 reductionism that that we see now. We we must understand that it's an infinite, infinitely complex system, and chronic inflammation underpins. Right, it, it, it fundamentally underpins all modern um, illness, modern slash chronic illness. Of course, in, in saying that, you know, people still die of infection. You know, absolutely, but it is um, it is often at the extremes of age, as we see it, in particular in our in our elderly, um, and that whole chronic inflammatory process makes them more prone. Mm. To having bad outcomes. I mean, I mean, COVID nineteen certainly showed that that those that were elderly, who were compromised, who were type two diabetic, who had other coexisting illnesses, tended to have bad outcomes. Not just death, but just excess morbidity from it, and you know, long COVID and all this sort of stuff. Um, it was very, very obvious that fit and healthy people that were keeping themselves extremely healthy. Um, or young people who tend to be generally healthier than the adults. Um, this wasn't so much of a major illness for them. Well, it certainly wasn't emphasised when it could have been and probably should have been that, you know, the so-called well, so-called deaths, there was there were deaths, <clears throat> but there was no acknowledgement that, that um, well, the average age, I think, of those who died was 82 or 84, yeah. um, and that, the, that there were, you know, the large majority, I'm talking, you know, 80, 90% of that was... Um, they had, you know, I know in Italy, I think it was Italy, I was reading stats about there were four or more comorbidities, you know, associated with the with those individuals, yep. you know, which we never heard about. We just thought, oh, a healthy person. And the only ones they really identified were like, um, I don't know, a healthy, fit weightlifter died of COVID today. It's like, oh, and that's all you get to hear. You don't get to hear that they weren't so fit and they weren't so healthy and that they used to be, but then they had these other comorbidities or they were, you know, so, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, a podcast series perhaps. But um, just back to um, leaky gut, why is, why would someone, and I know, I know a number of people who um, uh Dare I say, diagnosed with leaky gut? I don't know that they necessarily got to the core of it. I think, you know, medication, probably some change in diet, but it's manageable. Why would generally people have a leaky get a leaky gut? Okay, so we've got these. We call them tight junctions, right? We've got these cells in the small bowel and the, the damage largely is occurring in the small intestine, which is the four meters of, of gut that we've got in our in our mid-digestive tract. The small intestine for us human beings, as opposed to all other great apes like the gorillas and chimps, is highly specialized for us. This is where we do most of our quality absorption, right? The large bowel, there's a lot of focus on the colon or the hind gut, but in the reality of the situation, is just from a practical perspective, if we were to take out someone, a human being's large bowel, give them what we call an ileostomy, which is a stoma, 
They'd still survive. What's a stoma? Is it like filled yeah. in the gap? No, no, no. Stomas, are, 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 we bring the gut out to the surface and they get a little bag, okay. right? Yep. Yeah. So that's if the entire colon's removed, yeah. right, That that's what we call an ileostomy. They're, quite, they're not uncommon surgeries. You know, people lose their large bowels for a variety of reasons. These people can still thrive. They can still live. They can still live life, right? Did you post something the other day about um, – about this, that we could actually have that removed because yes. that's where a lot of the um, plant digestion Correct. or the, yep. f- that's, the fermentation That's chamber. exactly right. That The hindgut or the colon is where the vast majority of our trillions of gut microbiome exist, right? Uh, this is where we carry our microbiome. Now, with the microbiome in the hindgut, they're very important because they fundamentally break down plant fibres, indigestible plant fibres. Fibre is not a nutrient. No, fibre is basically a substrate for bacteria. It's basically a carbohydrate. Yeah, it's a carbohydrate. It's an indigestible carbohydrate. There is digestible carbohydrate like simple starches, which we humans do very well. We start breaking them down in our mouth, actually, and absorbing them in our mouth. Like, Like fruit? Um, fruit is a little bit different. Fruit is mm. fructose, but yeah. I'm talking things like sucrose. So we've got a enzyme called salivary amylase. Amylase starts splitting the starch straight away, so into a simple sucrose molecule. So we start that absorption process very quickly. Uh, dogs do the same, by the way, because they've adapted a gut that's almost identical to us because they've eaten the way we've eaten. Meat. Um, meat and starch. They, dogs will eat fruit. You yes. Know, yeah, dogs and a little bit of grass. Is that yeah. is that is that for making that, them spew? And is that a, a sign yeah, they, they they, they'll often eat grass um, again to provide a fibre as a substrate to their colon to ferment it. You know, because you can extract energy from from the fibre. Yeah. You can ferment fibre and extract energy. And this is a very interesting point, Charlie, is because you know fibre is purported to be this superfood, but there is nuance to that. I I think fiber is important to keep ourselves metabolically flexible and, you know, our body's flexible, but it is not an essential nutrient for us. As I said, we could lose the entire large bowel and still thrive. These people can no longer tolerate fiber. Speak to someone who's got an ileostomy bag, who's had their entire colon removed, plants are generally they will have to change their stoma bags. Yeah, often because it just ends up in the stoma bag. They have no ability to break it down because they're lacking a colon. In human beings, the digestion of fiber, soluble fiber as opposed to insoluble or plant-based material or, or non-absorbable carbohydrates accounts for about 2 to 5% of our daily energy intake. We cannot go above that 2 to 5%. There's a physiological limit. Our colon simply aren't adapted for that. Whereas with horses, it's up to 50% of their energy comes from fermenting fiber. Um so where does the other 94% of our energy come from? It comes from non-fibrous foods. So this emphasis on a high-fiber diet, uh, while I see the benefits of it, there has to be nuance. People need to understand that there's a physiological limit to how much fiber that we can digest. So the uh, so those with the colostomy bag, yeah, no, no, no hind gut, so to speak, no, bowel, no um, uh, colon and, and, and large intestine, what are they? What's their diet made up of generally? 
well, a lot of these people go on to a standard Australian diet and, and they struggle. Uh, they have output of, you know, five, six, seven times a day uh, because a lot of the stuff that they can't absorb, a lot of the grains they may potentially struggle with, uh, a lot of the non-absorbable sugars uh, end up end up there. Um, they, they eat like most normal people, but they very quickly figure out the foods that tend to cause them irritation, whether they can adhere to to uh, mm. staying away from them. that's a different story because you got to remember Charlie like there's been there's been decades of conditioning people that you must eat a specific way and you must stick to this pyramid so people I mean I I don't think people inherently want to be unhealthy there's all sorts of you know high dopamine foods that that people gravitate to but I think the vast majority of us just want to be healthy they want to eat the stuff that they've been recommended and we we've been told by the government what to eat. Right, the government has decreed what that which is healthy. So a lot of people just push themselves through it and and uh, and 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 get on with it. And and to go back to your question about these soma uh, individuals with stomas, I think they just eat very much like the the Australian population. And what ideally, what would they revert to if you know? Just like if you, uh, what would be the, the recommend an appropriate recommendation? Then yeah, I can't give specific advice, obviously, but but you'd want to be eating foods that is easily digestible within the small bowel, right? So I'm talking starches that can be broken down in the small bowel, things like you know sweet potatoes or potatoes, very little fibrous content in that. Um, these are digestible carbohydrates as opposed to indigestible, which is what fiber is. Fats that are that are broken down, you know, we, we can break down fats pretty well. Um, and when you say fats, you know, animal fats. I mean, is there such thing as plant fats? There are there are plant fats. We've got, you know, since the advent of agriculture about ten thousand years ago, uh, we've had all sorts of uh, mutations in our FADS gene. FADS genes something that codes for how we um, break down fat, and we can take you know uh, things like uh, plant based fats and convert them into medium chain triglycerides. We we've developed that ability in the last ten thousand years because we became a lot more dependent on plants for energy. We're amazing species, and it's the same thing with salivary amylase and carbohydrate tolerance. Our carbohydrate tolerance went up in the last ten thousand years because we became more dependent on it. We are without question omnivorous now, but what led to us becoming human was a high degree of carnivory, um, a lot of meat, a lot of fat, and that is what drove the development of the human brain. But if you had asked me now, what are we? What are we as a species? We're an omnivorous species of ape that is best adapted to extract everything from the environment. We, we, we can basically dominate and uh, master every aspect of our environment to best suit our needs. So we can extract energy from plants. We can extract energy from animals. We can, we can, we've even developed the genius method of taking another animal's milk right, and utilizing it to our best advantage. There is ingenuity in that. No other animal can do this. And um, the tolerance for milk rises about 8,000 years ago. Prior to that, human beings would have been poorly able to tolerate milk. But especially in the Northern European populations, people like yourself, Charlie, you would have something called a lactase persistence gene, which is the ability to hang on to your lactase, which is an enzyme that breaks down the carbohydrate in milk well into your adulthood. I've seen Caucasian people in their 80s with amazing lactase persistence, whereas people like myself, Asian, Southeast Asians, where farming wasn't 
bought in till later or domestication of these ruminants wasn't bought in till later, they generally tend to be more poorly tolerant of uh, milk. But then these sort of individuals mastered the ability to ferment foods. Fermentation kills off the lactose, breaks it down basically. So it makes it more tolerable to people that are lactose intolerant, so to speak. So we're, we're pretty amazing. Um, and we, along the way, we've learned other methods of, of extracting maximal energy, grinding, soaking, sprouting, fermentation, cooking, you know, boiling, like you know, all these methods of preservation and to breaking down foods to maximally extract energy for an energy-hungry brain in an energy-scarce environment. The problem that we have now is we exist in an environment where there is excess energy, excess refined fat, excess carbohydrates, but those foods that contain these things are fundamentally depleted in nutrients. And when I say nutrients, I'm talking vitamins, in particular minerals, and most importantly, um, essential fats such as the PUFAs, which are the polyunsaturated fats, the omega-3s, and probably the most critical is amino acids. We are fundamentally energy energy um, intoxicated and nutrient deprived. <laughs> intoxicated. Why? How do we get to this point? That's a that's a difficult um, question to answer, Charlie. But if I was to sort of summarize, if the, if the microphones weren't on, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, it's it's uh, one has to think. You know, there is a great deal of scarcity in in in, in this world. If you've grown up in the places that I've grown up in, you realise uh, very quickly. Like in the Western world, we cherish life, and and um, every life is important, and that what a beautiful concept. But in the places that I've grown up in Africa, life was cheap. Yeah, uh, people died, children died. Um, you know, eight hundred and fifty kids die every every day of just dysentery, you know, from drinking contaminated water. So the the reality of the situation, we live in this world where there is a scarcity of nutrient-dense foods, right? Uh, meat is a luxury for a lot of these people in, in Sri Lanka and India and, and uh, Africa. That, that This is an absolute luxury. This is the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet are a luxury for the vast majority of billions that live on this planet. We in the West are very lucky, but slow we too are catching up to the fact that scarcity, um, we are not beyond scarcity and obesity fundamentally, the way I look at it is, is a form of malnutrition basically. Okay. We, where these people are starved of good nutrient foods and, and rich in energy now compound that with the economic factors that underpin all of this, you know, meat, I think is probably or red meat in particular is the most inflated good in the last two years. Like it's up, what, 30, 40%, you'd be able to tell me, Charlie. But but when you get situations like this, you, you're going to find people deviate away from these nutrient-rich foods to foods that just fill the belly. But sadly, the foods that fill our bellies, right, are not necessarily packed with the quality nutrients that we need for survival. Um, in addition, you throw in the government, uh, oh, I shouldn't knock the government guidelines, or, you know, I should be careful about knocking anything related <laughs> to government or public health policy because my, my license very much depends on not questioning public health policy. Uh, but um, well, I not, think, not publicly anyway. Yeah, not publicly, but but you you combine that with a method of eating that tells people that that red meat's bad, red meat's causing bowel cancer, red meat's causing heart disease, eggs cause heart disease. Well, what are people supposed to eat? 
And the most important layer is throw in the predatory marketing of these f- corporate bodies that, that make these hyperpalatable foods that very much give us this dopamine hit and addict people to that. We well, got an issue. Um, there's a very elegant hypotheses known as the protein leverage hypotheses by a couple of guys called Rubenheimer and Simpson. And and what they fundamentally state, and I agree with this, is if you deprive an animal quality amino acids or protein, they are fundamentally driven to seek out these amino acids and they will do so in an environment that is full of hyperpalatable foods, refined fat and refined carbohydrates. So they'll try and hit their protein target, but they'll try and do it with white bread. They'll try and do it with biscuits. They'll try and do it with cereals and um, end up consequently just consuming far too much energy. And yeah, so they're trying to extract that little bit, but in the process they're actually consuming like a huge amount of starchy, um, potentially, and Hamish mentioned that yesterday in terms of the different planes of, of, um, uh, I guess, um, not hierarchy, but our sort of our um, levels of, what was the word again? Um, You know, we've got our, our bodies, we've got our mineral body, our, Etheric, our astral, now I am, and um, you know one of those I can't think now. So fermentation is the I am, but certainly one of them. Modern the etheric was about um, mold, and you know that that a lot of the foods, you know, starchy, crappy white bread too. It's I dare I say got preservatives in it to reduce mold because that stuff lasts for bloody yeah, weeks, you know. But absolutely. that's that, that's affecting our gut. Our bodies have to break down this foreign chemical. Yep. Um, and our and then also our our guts aren't being worked. It's like a muscle. Yep. You know that we're given this sort of very easily digestible, um, often physically sloppy food. Like people who live on on shakes, and and that's the, the gut isn't actually um, uh, having to work and 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 be challenged, which does which improves health and kind of the gut fitness, I guess. So. Yeah. Um, Tell me more about. Let's go back to um, animal fats and the and the the small intestine digestion. So we had animal fats. Um, we had sort of um, non fibrous plant foods. And was there was there another one in there? Yeah, um, and and protein quality and protein. protein. Yeah, yeah the pro- the problem with say for someone who's got an ileostomy. Let's go back to that example because it it removes an important component <laughs> that um, that that clouds the issue. If you were to give someone with an ileostomy foods like lentils and so forth, because of the indigestible component in these lentils and a lot of times the uh, anti-nutrients in them, uh, you'll, you'll find that the output's quite significant. So the question really is, yes, there's protein in plant foods, but how much of it do we actually absorb? And we've got to remember that plant foods just contain less of the essential amino acids like leucine, which allows us to stimulate muscle pr- uh, protein synthesis or, or formation of muscle. And uh, muscle's an important organ. It's very much understated. Muscle nowadays is looked at as, as a as a organ of aesthetics. You know, it's, uh, you know, we exist in this era, this Instagram era, I suppose, where aesthetics is everything. You know, the external uh, look is everything. But r- the reality of the situation, muscle to me is an endocrine organ. It, it's an organ that receives fuel. It's a it's an organ that allows you to move, right? I'm, I'm, you know, you, you've got 
a huge amount of acres here, Charlie, to cover, and you do so on muscle. Um, you know, your the ability to move, uh, the ability to stop yourself from falling is muscle. Uh, muscle's everything, um, and I've just I've simplified it there. But but th- there's so much to muscle that we don't understand, and and eating a diet that is poor in essential amino acids, I think makes it very difficult to hang on to muscle in addition to this chronic inflammatory state that we exist in makes us lose muscle. So that, that, that's an important point. You mentioned, um, I'm sure if you were use the word influencer there, but it's kind of, you know, I, I guess it makes me think of responsibility. Is it irresponsible when I'm, I'm going to pick on influencers here, support or advocate for a purely plant-based diet, and 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 you know, often at the same time, you know, say it's it's irresponsible of, of us to be eating meat. Is that you know, how does that sit with you? Yeah, look, um, I tend to not get too ideologically polarised about these sort of things. If you are able as a plant-based advocate or a plant-based individual to get all your essential amino acids. Uh, and you can do it. I mean, there are foods like soy and so forth, um, which which contain all the essential amino acids. You'd probably need to calorically eat a little bit more um, uh, to to get the right hit of essential amino acids. There's also some data that the amino acids from plants may tend to be oxidized and used as energy than rather than ending up in muscle. So there's a few issues there. But if you're a plant-based advocate and and you're able to get your intake of B12, uh, your iron, all of these sort of factors, choline, there's so much more I could go on about. But but if you're able to get all those essential nutrients and stay healthy, well, good luck to you. But the vast majority of people would struggle to get things like B12 into their diet. B12 comes from animal-based foods. And I've heard some plant-based influencers say that you've got to eat dirty vegetables to be able to get your, you know, B12. Because of the soil or the... Because of the soil, essentially the fecal matter matter that contains the the B12. The fecal matter being animal fecal matter. Yeah, that's right. So really it all comes back down to animals and uh, the fact that we probably need them for survival. Uh, I think a lot of the plant-based diets can be nutritionally depleting unless it's done properly with a great degree of care. And uh, it should probably be done with a trained nutritionist who understands these things, not just a a blanket rule that you just be plant-based. It's like, well, what are your requirements? What do you need? And how best should we supplement you to fundamentally prevent the shortfalls in diet? All this takes time, it takes effort, it takes money, uh, it takes compliance, or you can you can eat a steak, you know what I mean? Get get the essential nutrients from that. It's um, It really comes down to what people want to do. I, I, I support anyone who wants to live their life a specific way. It's just there has to be nuance and there has to be some guidance and direction for them before they pursue it. <clears throat> there's a bit of, there's a, not, I didn't say, <clears throat> you've both got the cough. We've got allergies to something, man. Yeah. Um, Probably each other, is it? So, um, <laughs> okay, and that's that's lovely. Thank you. We might finish there. Um, the um, no, no, no. The uh, where was I going with that one? Oh, that's right. So there's definitely a, a rise in the advocacy um, on all all levels. It seems of um, of of us as a race to <clears throat> strongly consider that bugs are a good thing to, to eat. <clears throat> uh, and I'm being, you know, 
sort of high level generic when I say that though. Does that um, do alarm bells go off for you? Is that something you support? What's your What's your view on? I mean, do you do you see that uh, being um, you know almost pushed on us? Uh, what's your view on on eating bugs? No issues with bugs, Charlie. <clears throat> but but you're a you're a multi generational farmer. You're in fact go back further. If you you you're from Northern European descent, you're you've eaten beef for generations. Right? How do you feel about your right to eat what you've eaten for thousands of years stripped away from you, your livelihood fundamentally stripped away from you, and to be told that you must eat bugs in the name of sustainability and scarcity? Is that, is that, is that the message you're hearing? Is that kind of the, you know... Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. all to do with sort of climate change and sustainability and, and I've got no issue with that. That's fine. But we've got to get the facts right. The question really is, is there consensus on the fact that cattle farming, especially the way the regenerative pastoralists do it, is that really contributing to climate change? I'm, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing that there are really some major improvements that need to be done on on you know on cattle farming. But here in Australia, the vast majority of our beef is grass fed. We're probably net carbon negative in terms of sequestering carbon. I don't understand why there's this massive push. Um, away from cattle-based farming. Um, you know, places like America and Brazil and so forth, I know that they're a lot more feedlot-based and, you know, the cattle's probably live in conditions that are less than ideal. But um, if the push to have us eating bugs, yeah, that's fine by me. That's fine. Okay, I get. I sort of understand it. But if the, we've got to get the facts right about cattle, why is it that we're being told to eat bugs, food that is not ancestrally consistent to both yourself and me? There are places in Africa where I've uh, I've seen they consume bugs in other parts of the world, but are they really doing it by choice or are they doing it through scarcity? I suspect it is the latter. I think it's been done because they don't have access to the quality proteins that we do. So really I question the moves at a very high level to push us away from animal-based agriculture. And that's what I want to know before I eat the bug meat. If I am to, to become dependent on bugs for my my protein, I, I want to know why, clearly. Well, I guess it's a, <clears throat> you know, at, um, not worst case, but certainly at a, at a you know, there's, there's the... Uh, okay, bugs are being produced. There, you can buy them in a bag or a bottle at a, at a wherever you want to get your food, and it's your choice, and that's fine if you want to do that. You know, it's another source of protein, as I understand it, and and it's a choice, and that's fine. I guess we're probably seeing eye to eye there. Absolutely, kind of that thing. And but, but is it a choice though? Is it at which point does yeah, it become mandated that's to right. to consume it? At which point do you? Go to the you know to the um, grocer. You end up um, at, at the at the counter uh, about to pay for your steak, and and you're told that well you've exceeded your your carbon limit. <laughs> you know in terms of your food intake yes. that you've you've had for the week, and you've got to put that back and 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 go. <laughs> and, and your credit up. card won't work because that, you. That's right. For that reason, yeah, we're, we're on a centrally issued uh, <laughs> digital currency. Oh, that'll never happen. What are you talking uh, about, you weirdo? Yeah, look, uh, that's conspiracy <laughs> theory. Stuff. Stuff, isn't it, Charlie? But um, you, you know, like 
th- these are the sort of things that we've got to be careful of. I think freedoms are lost one step at a time and um, and what is being done in the name of sort of sustainability needs to be questioned by the population before, uh, before you know, five, ten years from now, we've completely lost the ability to consume um you know, foods like beef because because of for that reason. I'd hate to see beef become a food of the elites, um, food that's enjoyed like caviar, uh, you know, and that's where I fear it's all heading. I tell you, the beef industry will always thrive. Increasingly now, the way uh, China's consumption is going, um, you know, China's been buying up beef and driving up the prices of beef like you wouldn't believe, like you, you'd probably know this, but... Uh, you know, we've got to question that. You know, China's um, consumption keeps going up, rising. Their their health, consequently, I feel is probably improving. They've pulled a hell of a lot of people out of poverty in the last few decades through that model that they've employed. I'm not, you know, supporting China's uh, political structure. I think there's huge issues there uh, with freedoms and whatnot. But uh, uh, I think what I'm trying to warn against is that Australians must be very, very careful in giving up their rights to consume beef in the name of, well, climate change and sustainability because there's debates on both sides as to whether they are truly contributing to carbon um, uh, carbon emissions or whether they're part of the solution for sequestering carbon, especially with regenerative methods, which I think a lot of farmers use. Um, additionally, they're a great source of nutrition. We cannot just throw that away. Um, and, and historically is what... Uh, Australians have consumed for, for for hundreds of years, and 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 you know going back further to a lot of their ancestral roots uh, for for thousands. And you look at the Aboriginal population; they they they've sort of evolved with you know foods like kangaroo and so forth. I think it does everyone a disservice to strip away the ability to consume red meat, not necessarily beef. I'm talking goats and and sheep and kangaroos, all that, all of that. What um, <clears throat> what about uh, you mentioned freedom a couple of times there. What what um, freedoms do you feel we are potentially slipping away? And you probably touched on one there. You know, f- f- food and potentially red meat. What are, where, anything else you want to touch on there in terms of the slippery slope um, that we're sort of sitting on at the moment? Yeah. Look, I think um, Henry Kissinger said, you know, he who controls. The food supply controls the people. He controls energy, contro- controls continents, and he controls money, controls the entire world. Um, I think what we're looking at fundamentally with food, which we've got to look as humans, it's fundamentally energy for our nourishment, right, for our sustenance, for our body. I think we're, our freedoms with regards to food are slipping, and uh, the trajectory is very, very clear. It's quite obvious. I think you'd have to be, um, you'd have to have your eyes closed if you can't see where it's heading. I think with regards to energy, certainly the switch to renewables um, is a massive push that we're, we're seeing. So I think we're slowly losing our freedoms to the type of energy and the access to energy. I've just got my energy bill for my uh, clinic um and it's higher than I've ever seen it before. But yeah. but aren't we aren't we being supported by all these wonderful renewable energy situations? You can see it one not through the trees there. Thank God the wind firm farms over there. Isn't that kind of weird that there's more wind farms going up, more solar, but energy prices are still going up? Yeah, I, I've got my thoughts on renewables. I just I, I, I think I think um, they're intermittent. They do provide energy, but they need some form of base 
back up um, to to a- able to offset their um, volatility, I suppose, in energy production. We're very much dependent on on um, things like the wind and, and and the cloud cover that that affect the energy output from all of that. I think the loss of um, energy freedoms, not just calorically from our food perspective, but also from that which powers civilization, is is a is a major problem. And and finally, on the topic of freedoms, I think I think the digitally issued currencies is a real problem because you're fundamentally centralizing money under the role of the government. And I think it'll become, rather than true currency, it fundamentally becomes a token that can be controlled very, very easily. And I think uh, I was alarmed to see uh, the Canadian truckers who protested, whether I agree with their protests or not, uh, another matter. But to have their bank accounts frozen by government um, was an alarming thing. You know, the ability to feed and nourish their families was compromised. Um, they were protesting fundamentally what they thought was something draconian uh, from 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 the government. Um, and, and I think that's the sort of future that we face with a centrally issued digital currency. It, it is you, you're leaving all the power up to one body, which is fundamentally your government, to be able to control your ability to transact. And the addition to that, the truckers, the Canadian truckers, I also understand and saw a bit of stuff around it was there were a few like GoFundMe pages that got up to sort of support them, even those, which was kind of at arm's length, not the truckers themselves, but those who supported, those funds were frozen within some of those those sort of crowdfunding things as well. Because big tech, right, GoFundMe or Facebook or Instagram, Meta, whatever you want to call it, Google, they, they're all centralised. They're, they're fundamentally owned by one company. And if it's owned by one company, these companies tend to work well with governments. It's, a, it's something that we call cronyism, crony capitalism. This is how a lot of these companies get ahead. It's ties to, to higher political powers. And I think they just complement each other and you've got the ability to basically switch off um, a person's sustenance, which, which I think is a problem. <laughs> it's a massive problem. It's an understatement of the century. Yeah. I guess, as you say, energy. That's uh, I've never sort of thought of the distinction between the energy that we you know plug into for in our powering our homes and the energy in our in our gut. But it's but for 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 those two essentials, uh, you know, to be um, uh, to be a uh, what's the word? Um, I'd be I guess being attacked. You know, our, our right, as it were, to an energy supply in our food. You know, and as you say, it's sometimes an economic decision for people to buy crappy food because they can't afford it. And even in that, there's a bit of a paradigm that could be shifted. I think because, as Hamish was talking about yesterday, and you know, in the in the context of biodynamic food, you just don't need to eat as much. You know, exactly. so people go. You know, when they go shopping, they go, oh, I can't afford organic food. Um, uh, happy to spend the most of their time in those central aisles in the supermarket buying crap food because it, it's cheaper. But at the end of the day, as you say, they eat much more of it and they're nutritionally deprived. And it's, you know, lovely. One of my favourite quotes from Joel Salatin is, you know, you have a choice every day to pay the farmer today or the doctor later on or the undertaker just beyond that, you know. So it's always a – but I guess, and it's nice to say you have a choice, um, but as you've highlighted – 
you know, even that choice is being eroded at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a slippery slope, and um, I think I think it's really up to the population. The what we're seeing at the moment is what we call top down governance. You know, the orders are coming from up top, but governments are only a reflection of the bottom down or bottom up pressure. It's a reflection of the population, really. You know, just I don't want to get too political here, but uh, you've got you know people like Daniel Andrews who's completely mismanaged estate, if I can be honest with you, and there's only a high links to to corruption and so forth, but he's still likely to to get in power because the people people don't want to change that. And and so really with with that, I think it's really up to the people to kind of elect the people that they want in power. And I think we've got a lot of power as, 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 uh, as a population. Uh, the true power really lies in the population, but I think large numbers of the population need to wake up and and realise that not all is kind of right with the world, and certainly there's erosions of of what we think uh, as autonomy, trust, personal freedoms, um, the ability to choose. So I, I think we've really got to be careful. I think it's a slippery slope, but but I'm I'm not cynical. Um, Long term, I'm very hopeful overall. That um, that that the right thing wins out at the end. Whether that happens in our lifetime, Charlie, I'm not sure. But but I think uh, eventually humanity can't keep going down this pathway forever. We cannot keep feeding people this junk, this poison that that we're feeding them and having them unwell. And it's just no way to live. But there's a great um, quote from Tennessee Williams who said, "Birds born in cages." I think flying is a is a mental illness. I'm paraphrasing there, but um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantastic. You, you know, and and if that is what our children are born into, and that becomes the norm for them, I think we we're we're in trouble because uh, they haven't known anything else. So I think it really is up to us to educate a generation of um, of children, the next generation, fundamentally to understand what what being a human being is. And um, and and everything that goes on around them, but to to, to, to do that, it really needs a person to understand uh, the breadth of of or the depth um, of how so many things intersect to, um, co- to 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 the point where we are now. Have you got any like go to pillars, like you know, um, life kind of? Uh, mantras that you want to share? Is there anything that you kind of repeat to yourself often, or you, you is is it your uh, you? It's your like your your life elevator pitch to to people. Is there any kind of anything um, that springs to mind that it just resonates with you every time you hear it or read it or say it? Yeah, it's a good question, Charlie. I, I mean, I, I'm I, I was born a Hindu, but I don't know much of Hinduism. It's it's a very old religion, and there's great aspects to it. But I was always an avid reader. I mean, you said your happy place is the farm. My happy place as a kid was the library. You know, all I did was read all sorts of things. And and one of the books that that I loved um, was was the Bible. I, I just read it over and over again. I'm not religious. I've got I've got no belief in a higher power per se. But a lot of the those tenets of, of the biblical philosophy kind of stuck with me, in particular the New Testament, and and I think, and I think um, if I was to go back to where I, where do I derive my morality is probably from something as simple as the as the commandments, you know what I mean, the twelve commandments. So um, that's my fallback um, uh, for me. That's where I derive my morality. 
Um, do I draw inspiration? I draw inspiration from all sorts of philosophers of, 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 of the past. You know, I think reading philosophy is like a conversation with the greatest minds that have ever lived. Um, and so there's a lot of reflection that, that goes on there, but, um, and I draw a lot of inspiration from people like yourself, uh, Charlie, because I think that's where the surge towards real healthcare is going to come from. I think it's going to come from uh, repairing the way farming's done. By repairing the way farming's done, we generate good quality nutrition. With good quality nutrition, we bring human human beings back to their to their true potential. We're all capable of great things. We're, we're a civilization or a species that built the pyramids. You know, try and get human beings to replicate what 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 the pyramids are now to a smaller scale, we wouldn't be able to do it. Um, you know, that's why we've got to put the work of the pyramids down to aliens because we, we can't believe that we actually built it, but we did. Not just the pyramids, there's all sorts of amazing structures that we've we've constructed, Gebekli Tepli attack in, in Turkey, you know, the Mayan pyramids. We're, we're capable of great things as human beings, but I think we've uh, we've forgotten that along the way and and become trapped in this um, in, in, in this world uh, awash with dopamine, both from a food perspective, social media perspective, gambling, drugs, all, all of that. And I think um, the more time you spend with yourself, more self-realization and and self-actualization that you do, the the more you start realizing all of these aspects of life. Um, just on the um, pyramids, it's fascinating. I sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm really into that. I just think it's fascinating and to see the – I haven't actually been to any. I know that's one of my – on my bucket list is actually get to Peru, get to um, Turkey, get to, you know, even – well, you know, the subcontinent. There's, there are places which – and Egypt – it cannot be explained how they got that precision engineering. Those rocks have been there, you know, the weight of them, the 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 way that you can't even put a, you know, a bit of paper between them and they've been there for thousands and thousands of years. There is something that happened that we no longer have access to in terms of technology. There's no doubt about that. I, I'm, I'm actually convinced of that. And um, But that's not really talked about and not known because we think that there's a whole lot of slaves that built the pyramids and all these sort of generic ideas around that, which is a convenient way to kind of just put all that aside. A more in, more um, uh, current or, or, or more um, uh, recent example of that was um, I saw an interview the other day of a, of a NASA technician, and it was probably this was probably this might have been it didn't look like new footage, but it might have been ten, tw- even twenty years ago, um, talking about going back to the moon, and the guy said, and he was legit technician at NASA, probably got sacked as soon as he said this. Because the, the reporter was saying, why, why haven't we gone back to the moon since whenever it was the last time? And he said, he, he just simply said, we have lost that technology. We can't go back because we've lost that technology. It's like, are you serious? Like NASA has just lost technology. And it's, and it's, it's like a small example of what's happened before. You know, all these amazing things were built. Yep. By different civilizations, there is there are stone carvings of similar kind of images and things, and there's some real consistency between technique and symbolism and a whole lot of stuff, and that's kind of not known as well. And then NASA comes along and says, "Oh no, we've lost that technology. Go to the moon." I mean, you've got to go. What? Yeah. The hell. Absolutely. I think it's such an elegant point that you've made there. But look at where 
look at where all the advancements are, uh, Charlie. You just you don't need to look far to realise that the advancements are in every aspect related to things like the military military industrial complex. Um, you know, you've got companies like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, which are the weapons manufacturers in America, um, who are deeply tied with their Congress over there, and and all that's known about in the concept I described, crony capitalism. But they they have profited billions already this year, um, and and because they, 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 they innovate, they have innovated in weapons fundamentally used to destroy each other. We human beings, uh, uh, this is the direction in which we're going. Additionally, to the uh, military complex, we've got the pharmaceutical, agricultural, medical, um, uh, industrial complex. That, those three are interrelated. This is how farming, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry intersect. That industry is provided to the tune of, of trillions, you know, and and that's where money's being made. Where in 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 these industries profiting, what we're fundamentally doing is making a select group of people very very wealthy, select few, and and in the process fundamentally destroying um, humanity and, and driving a greater wedge between those at the top and those in the middle and uh, lower class. Just what's the time there, mate? What, what, are, you, what are you getting there? 830. Okay. We are going to wrap this one up, if it's cool, because I've got to get back up there in half an hour. However, between now and then, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to catch up again. We have, to. we have to. This is not fair to me and you and to the world if we don't. Um, we'll make a date. But I'm going to just clock off now and we're going to go to a little, have a stretch, and then we're going to do a little Q&A for my Patreon members. So there they get sort of exclusive content for those who are listening um, if you want to jump on board our little Patreon membership, you just go to um, charliearnett.com.au and sign up there. It's 10 bucks a month and you get transcripts of all the, in, uh, the interviews. We get a, a weekly um, little video from me about what's happening on the farm or in my life and thoughts and thoughts and cogitations and a monthly webinar with, um, with, with a guest, a, a previous guest, so, and a few other bonus things. So um, we're going to do that, if that's cool. We do a bit of a Q&A with some standard set of questions. Yes. Um, some of which we've kind of covered already, but we'll we'll go there again. And um, mate, that has been uh, Narup. Narup. <laughs> we that has been um, fascinating. I've been so looking forward to this, and I knew we wouldn't have enough time. And the the list is endless of things we can chat about. And I'm really, I mean, it's it's not it's not like oh, this is an easy conversation because we have similar thoughts on things. It's not like oh, I don't like to challenge my guests, but it's just it's 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 lovely to have a chat with someone as I often do, and it's and it's it, that's that's lovely in itself that there are people, and that's I guess what tribes come to down, isn't it? You sort of hang with people that you kind of you you you, you vibe with, but to have some conversations, me being a farmer, you a doctor, and heading, we didn't even get to your farm. Bloody hell. Well, like maybe we save that up. We yeah, save that definitely. bit up for when we are at the farm. Yeah. Um, and you heading into, you know, um, where, dare I say, you know, a, a pivot or a change of purpose or direction, which I th- I'm really looking forward to helping you with and whatever, however that looks. Um, but having the chat and lovely to, to finally sit and have those conversations, which are, and it's, you know, the last couple of years have just really um, – highlighted to me the importance of having those conversations and the importance of finding your tribe and, you know, yes, thank you, not a big fan of technology generally, but thank you, technology, for um, 
allowing connections through social media and through, you know, Zooms and all those sort of things um, that we can connect as tribes around the world. And, you know, our Patreon members are a tribe, um, our listeners are a tribe, and um, our little group of, of, well, large group of, of farmers and gardeners and interested people up there uh, at the Shearing Shed for the Biodynamic Workshop, that's another tribe, and it's just a real honour to have you here and to have them here um, to host you here at Hannah Minow and... Um, we'll get you back. I'd love to, uh, Charlie. Thanks for having me on today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to everyone. Thanks, mate. And next week's guest on The Regenerative Journey is Cherie Gooding. I caught up with her at her farm, Coolabar, at uh, Biloela on the back of a biodynamics workshop she hosted with a family. She's a vet. Uh, she's a mum. She's amazing. She's had her own health challenges uh, through her life um, and, and can see the parallels with landscape and animal health. Uh, it's a fantastic chat, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's Cherie Gooding next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.